I'm sure many of us at many times in our lives have had some kind of conflicts, right? Uh, yes or no? Um, yeah? I see quite a few. Okay. Alright. Conflicts. They come around, don't they? Right? There are conflicts around us all the time in this world. There is there's conflict among nations. Uh, there are conflicts within families. I was once doing a funeral service and there was uh, a person who got up to read the eulogy in this service and half of the congregation got up and walked out. Well, I thought to myself, what have I done here? Have I done anything wrong at this funeral service? And they didn't come in right until the end of the benediction. And after the service, I kind of went up to them and asked them what happened. Well, they did not want to listen to the eulogy that was read by that family member, and so they thought they should walk out. How sad was that? I mean, it happened, friends. It, I, I was there, it happened. So, it was sad, very sad. It happens within families. Brothers and sisters don't talk to one another. I had a lady a few weeks ago who said to me, not in this church, uh, sadly, I'm not speaking with my brothers anymore uh, over a land, over a property dispute. How sad is that? There are conflicts in churches. You would expect that there should be no conflicts in churches. Surely, how could there be conflicts within churches? The so-called families of God, whose places should be most noted for Christ's peace, are often marked by conflict. And we had the Jerusalem Council, for example, dealing with a difficult situation. Paul's letters to some of the churches were churches that were affected by conflicts. And there are conflicts within marriages, and sadly some have led even to divorce. And conflicts, when they are not dealt with, can escalate and become out of control. And it can affect those around you, it can affect in the church situation, it can affect the work of the gospel, and it can cause chaos in terms of relationships. And so we need to deal with it. Now, this sermon this morning is not on how you're going to handle conflicts, because this is not the text for that, but certainly Nehemiah was faced with the challenge of this. In our study of the book of Nehemiah today, in chapter 5, we see the conflict from within, which had the potential to destroy the good work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. This was a, a big work, it was a great work, it was a good work, it was God's work. And so last week we saw in, in chapter 4 how the opposition intensified against God's people as they worked to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to try and stop the progress of the walls. There were, for example, people like Sanballat, there was Tobiah, there were the Ammonites, there were those who were outside the walls of Jerusalem teaming up together to attack God's people, they were making fun of them, they were ridiculing them, they were in fact ready to bring down this work. And Nehemiah developed a strategy. In chapter 4, the workers had a sword in one hand, they had the trowel on the other hand, and they were working with a weapon and, and doing the work. In fact, half of the people were keeping guard. And Nehemiah had a trumpeter next to him, and he said, boy, if the trouble gets to you, the trumpeter is going to blow this trumpet. You come to us, we'll rally together, and we're going to attack. And, friends, as I said last week, J.I. Packer in his book, The Passion for Faithfulness, on Nehemiah puts it best, and I want us to remember this, in chapters 4 through to 6. Nehemiah chapters 4 through to 6 is nothing more than spiritual warfare. 
and Nehemiah's real opponents lurking behind the human opponents, critics and grumblers who occupied his attention directly was Satan, whose name means adversary, who operates as the permanent enemy of God, God's people, God's work and God's praise. So we need to remember that. And writing further, Packer states this, Satan is a hater, is a wrecker, is a destroyer, and only when he's ruining God's work in individuals and communities is he really happy. Satan will be smiling when God's work is being attacked. And so the Bible speaks of Satan. As the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the cosmic power over this present darkness. In fact, the Bible, in the Bible, he's named in a variety of ways. He's the slanderer, he's the accuser, he's the enemy, he's the dragon, he's the murderer, he's the father of lies, he's the destroyer. He's like a serpent that can bite us when we least expect it. His serpent likeness is his sneakiness. And you come from behind and attack. So the, the Satan is real. He's a formidable enemy. He's an enemy who is at work. That opposition to God's work. But we know that by the death of Jesus Christ, his work is bound, he's chained, but he's still operational. He's a wounded attacker. And so in chapter 4, the opposition was from outside. And they have an army who is set outside with swords pointing at them. And the people, as I said, were working hard. And when this failed, when this strategy failed, you know what Satan tries? He tries another one. He tries another strategy. And this time it is to cause conflict from where? From within. You see, here in Nehemiah chapter 5, we see that the pressure intensifies and Nehemiah is confronted with yet another set of problems. And this time, though the pressure is not external, this time the pressure is from within, from the least expected source. It will come. And friends, I've been in ministry by God's grace for for a number of years. And sometimes I have sat back and wondered, how is this possible? How is it possible that the attack is coming from within? But it happens, isn't it? And so Nehemiah tells us what was going on here. You see, they said to Nehemiah, let us tell you what's actually happening. Forget the people out there. We have conflicts here within. And this kind of conflict is really hard. The internal conflict and strife is a threat to God's good work. And so it was the conflict from within the wall and not from without. Now you can unite and fight a common enemy outside. Is that clear? You can fight a common enemy outside. But what can you do when you fight among one another? When the conflict is within And sadly, friends, the conflicts we face in life can come from within. It can come from within our homes, as I said. It can come in the workplace. Those of you have, some of you have said to me, uh, speaking to one of the brothers this past week, and he said to me, Chris, I am really stressed at work. 
And I said to him, look, well, let's catch up for lunch. And I'm planning to do that soon. I'm really stressed because my <laughs> workplace stress can be... Do you have anybody has workplace stress from time to time? I see some heads nodding. I don't want you to raise your hands. I see, I see some heads going very fast. <laughs> okay. Right? Workplace stress, right? You think, man, how am I going to survive this thing? This conflict in a workplace. The guy who's sitting next to me or the lady. Oh, and I've got to turn up every week. I've got to work. I'm going to sit next to that person. I've got to work in that desk. And it's causing me chaos. I'm losing my hair. I'm going gray. Well, kind of. All right, and, and, and conflict can come also in, in the classroom. I mean, some of the young people, some of the conflicts that I speak to a lot of young people, this helps me to stay young and cool. <laughs> and, 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 and they kind of talk to me and they tell me, you know, it's, it's hard, Chris, sometimes to be a Christian in the, in, in the classroom. It's a challenge there. And what about friends within the church? It happens as well. And within a nation, like for example, we saw in Egypt recently, what a tragic situation was that. People within the same nation fighting against each other. So sad, isn't it? And so these internal conflicts can cause chaos, it can destroy relationships, it can cause hurts, and they are emotionally draining. For a leader, an internal conflict is emotionally draining, and it can be a distraction. And here in Nehemiah chapter 5, we see that he had to deal with the conflict from within. And as they rebuild the cracks and the breaches in the walls around Jerusalem, suddenly we also uncover the cracks and the breaches in God's people. Cracks are appearing in the work. Cracks are appearing in the good work that God has called them to do. And so in this chapter, I want to go through this very quickly this morning. We see the complaints. We see the confrontation that takes place, and there is a correction as well. Right? In, 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 in the complaints, what do we see? In Nehemiah chapter 5, 1 and 2. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry, a massive outcry. What did they say against their fellow Jews? Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. We have this great outcry, men and wives. These people are working hard, but now for some period of time, they finally said, enough is enough, Nehemiah. <laughs> oh, we are just at the end here. See, the said to Nehemiah, look, you're asking too much from us, Nehemiah. There is no food. Can't you understand the sacrifice that we're making, Nehemiah? We are going home to get food for our families, so, we are not, so that we can stay alive out of the work. One. Complaint one. Complaint two. There's another group that comes. And their complaint is this. There were those who owned property and mortgaged their properties to get food to survive. In fact, Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 3 says this. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. You have your Bibles open, alright? So that's good. That's good. Okay. There was a famine that aggravated the situation. The food prices were going up. The poor were hard hit. Inflation was on the rise. And because the money loaned, the rich Jews were taking over the lands of the poor Jews. Can you imagine that? Brothers and sisters treating one another in this way. And so this group says, we are making sacrifices to rebuild the walls and look what's taking place to us. It's economic chaos. 
The third complaint is this. In chapter 5 and verse 4. Still others were saying, we have to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Now, I'm sure all of us really love to pay our tax, right? Uh, <laughs> no response here. <laughs> we all love it when taxes go up. I don't think so. <laughs> right? Uh, right? Look, look, look at what's going on here. There were those who borrowed money to pay their, the king's taxes. You see, the Persian king at the time received a fortune in taxes, and these taxes did not go to support Medicare or health reforms or the roads, nothing. It went straight to the king, straight to his treasury. All that money. So they had to borrow to pay his tax. The fourth complaint was this. Although we are this, of the same flesh and blood uh, as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Can you understand what's going on here? They are subjecting their children to slavery. These rich Jews were not only just giving money and lending the money, they were extorting from these people interest. And they were using the crisis of the moment to build their own financial well-being. How sad is that? And the poor, when they could not pay back the money that they had to give over, they took their children. And that was the way they enslaved the children. Forget about the slavery in Babylon. Forget about the slavery in Egypt. There was oppression that was coming from within. And this conflict was straight there confronting the people. They had a fifth column inside that was demoralizing the people. Boy, oh boy. What a situation. Imagine if you were Nehemiah. Or if you were one of the leaders. What would you do? (laughs) What would you do? You got four complaints. There's a great outcry. The women are crying. The men are shouting. Slavery has taken place. Money is being laundered. No interest payments. People's properties are being taken. The wall is being, the work is being affected. I wonder one day when we get to heaven, we will get to heaven, if we trust Jesus Christ, sit and have a chat with Nehemiah. (laughs) And ask him, Nehemiah, how did you handle that? How did you handle it? Well, what did Nehemiah do? Friends, in chapter, uh, in this chapter, verses 6 to 11, he confronts the situation. You see, it is one thing to confront foreign enemies, but it is another thing to confront and to deal with your own. Nehemiah confronted those who were sinning against their their brothers. And he said this, he pointed out their sin in a great public assembly. I call it a congregational meeting. The Presbyterian Church was established then. (laughs) They're a congregational system. (laughs) He called a congregational meeting. Uh, I was almost tempted to say call a general assembly. Uh, But I think he called a congregational meeting here. And he said, brothers and sisters, we need to deal with this problem. Verses 6 to 8, when I heard their outcry, these charges, I was very, very happy. You're following me in the Bibles? He was very angry. You see, Nehemiah is angry. In the taunts, the intimidations, the threats, and the scope of everything, not one time have we read up to this point that Nehemiah got angry. He didn't get angry with Sanballat, nor with Tobiah, or with others. But now, 
he gets angry. And so some people have accused Nehemiah of anger. I don't think this is sinful anger. I don't think so. I think what we see here is a righteous anger. It is a righteous indignation. When a good work of God is being derailed, there is a thing of righteous anger. Remember what Jesus did in the temple with the money lenders? What did he do? He got rid of them. He turned the tables over. He was angry. Exactly the same that Nehemiah is doing. He's pointing to that day when Christ will do the same in the temple. And notice what he does when he's angry. He has a meeting. Did you notice that in the text? And he has a meeting with whom? Did you pick that up? He has a meeting with himself. He, has, he, he, he takes counsel with himself. And this meeting was with himself. And I'm sure Nehemiah prayed, but he also had a meeting with himself. You see, do you have a meeting with yourself? I've heard people who said to me, oh, this is my me time. This is my me time. Don't disturb me. This is my me time. It's for me to have that me time. So whatever that me time is, I hope it's a good me time. All right? That you have time to sit down and you just have that conversation with yourself and ask, where am I going in my life? What is happening here? So Nehemiah had this time with himself. He took counsel. And that is a lesson for us as well, isn't it? Someone said to me, when you're angry, just count up to 20. And take a deep breath. Right? Uh, we need to calm down. We need to chill out. Right? And just relax a bit. <laughs> Life is too short. Is that correct? So don't be rash. And don't become out of control. And make decisions in your anger that can impact your life and impact those around you. And so what we see in Nehemiah is a mature behavior. There we see the, correct, the character of the man. He takes a step back to talk to himself. I pondered them in my mind. Verse 7. A crucial moment. This, I, I looked at the text and I asked myself why. You see why? My understanding is that this is a crucial moment in the rebuilding project. This is the moment that leadership needed to step up. The leader then, in this instance, needs to be in control. It's a management principle. But a good leader also confronts. A good leader will also deal with the situation. A good leader will also handle that situation. A good leader will be able to confront that problem and handle it. And so Nehemiah brings charges against the nobles. Chapter seven and uh, sorry, chapter five, verse seven b. And so he brings these charges. I told them, you are charging your own people interests. So I called a large assembly, large meeting to deal with this problem. And in verse 8, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They, I like the text there. They kept quiet. <laughs> right? Because they could find nothing to say. You see what's happened here, friends? What's happened? There was a conviction of what has gone wrong. God has brought that to their minds. And they kept quiet. And they ref reflected upon it. You see, friends, we can take advantage of people, isn't it? What about us? Do we take advantage of others? 
for our own selfish gains? Do we take advantage of other people emotionally? I was thinking about that. Do we take other, uh, advantage of other people's friendships for our own gain? How, how are we taking advantage of others? Are you? Am I? Think about it. And so this correction that goes on in, chap- in, in chapter 5 and verse 9, I continued. He said, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? And you can see that. Give back to them immediately their fields. Give back to them everything. And he brought the fear of God. Oswald Chambers says this about the fear of God. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And Nehemiah has pointed the reproach of the Gentiles. These non-Christians, they are going to look at you and say, Man, these people, I thought that they were supposed to love one another. But look at them. They are fighting with each other. There is conflict in this place. And it's the reproach of the Gentiles. Have you heard it sometimes said to you, Oh, Chris, I don't want to come to church because they're all hypocrites there. I always say to people, yes, we are redeemed hypocrites. Right. Saved by grace and a work in progress. I was at a function, actually, my wife, Rose, and myself, at a dinner. And it was a special party of someone, a friend that we knew, you know, well, and this, this young man got up and said, and this, this was a pastor who was serving in a particular congregation, their son got up and said, this thing happened in my father's life when, I was, when he was a pastor in such and such a congregation. And he said, the infighting in that congregation caused so much distress to my father. In fact, today, that brother is not in ministry, and his son is not walking with the Lord. When I heard that, when we heard that, on the way back, I said to Rose, what a sad reflection, isn't it? What a sad reflection. You see, the fear of God is something that must keep in mind. When the non-Christians hear of church strife, and they see conflicts within the church, and we start gossiping about our church, or whatever the problems we may have, Instead of building the body of Christ, it can only bring it down. You see, what's your role in God's church here at St. Stephen's? Are you building the body of Christ? Are you seeing everything negative? Yes, we have opinions. Yes, there are issues. Yes, it's never perfect. The perfect church will be in heaven. Right? Agreed? The church was perfect, someone said, until I, that is, you put your name there, joined it. <laughs> right? Because we are imperfect people, and we need to keep this thing under control. Self-control. You see, build up. Pray that God will help you to ask the question, Lord, what can I do to build up your church? What can I do to build up your kingdom? What can I do to exalt the name of Jesus Christ? That the kingdom of God will expand. 
through my commitment, through my zeal, through my fervor, through my love for the brothers and sisters in Christ, so that the gospel of Christ will prosper and the name of Jesus Christ will be exalted, glorified and magnified. What's your role in that? What's my role in it? Do I need to humble myself? Do you need to do that? See, Nehemiah confronted the problem. He dealt with the issue. We must never let non-Christians look at the church and laugh and make fun of it. And notice what the people said. We will give it back. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything. There was repentance. There was restitution. There are three hours here. There was repentance. There was restitution. There was reconciliation. Three important things. We don't have time to unpack that this morning. That took place here. Convicted of their wrongs. They made restitution. You see, Nehemiah gets them to take an oath. And at the end of this, at the end, notice that what takes place. At the end of this, the whole assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. (laughs) What a thing, eh? When the people get together and, what do we do here, friends? Praise the Lord. (laughs) Wow. What an example. What an outcome. And so in verses 14 to 17, we see that Nehemiah, he could have taken lots of money. He could have done his, he could have claimed everything else, but he did not. He showed generosity. He showed hospitality. I want to encourage us to open up our homes if you can. Invite people over. Share a meal. Get to know one another. Be generous. Don't be stingy. Nehemiah says those things. Look at the text. He says, I've opened up my home. I've given people food to eat. (laughs) And charge them. I've never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. He sacrificed. A generous heart, isn't it, friends? Are you a generous person? How generous are we in response to what God has done for us? How much has he blessed us with? Yesterday, Warwick Short, those men who were there, you heard what he said? About all the agricultural terms and he he told the people, look at how God has blessed us with the sun, with all the money in in the world, you can't buy the sunshine. With all the money in the world, you can't buy the rain. With all the money in the world, you can't buy the soil. But God has given all these things he had about, seven, about 10 or 12 things he mentioned, right? Of God's generous giving. How much has he blessed us with? And the last verse, as we wind up this message, as we keep going this morning, says, remember me with, remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. See, he's not praying for God to remember him when, he, when it comes time to die. And for him to get to heaven. If you go back to his first prayer, Nehemiah knows that he's a sinner. And he can't save himself. He's not doing this to get to heaven. What is he asking of God? He's saying, Lord, the test has come. The moment has come. And he did not expect to be remembered by the world. He did not expect to be remembered by his people. He only asked in that day that God remember him with favor. 
It doesn't matter what the world says. It doesn't matter what your people say, God. Nehemiah says, remember me as I have sought to serve you. You know my heart, Lord. You know I was holding, not holding leadership to have a status. I didn't hold this thing for a position. You know how I have worked. By your grace, I worked through this crisis. Let your people remember with favor, says Nehemiah. What a prayer. You know, when you get to heaven one day, will the Lord be able to say to you, well done, well done. What is, what's the rest of it? We'll say it again. Well done, good and faithful servant. You see, that's the favor of our God. I'd rather have the favor of God shine in my life than the empty praises of men. Because when your heart is right with God, it will also show it in your relationships, right? I can't say, oh, I love the Lord and not show it in my relationships. It doesn't make sense. So as we conclude, friends, life, in this life, there will be conflicts. Yeah? There will be. We cannot stop what people will say about us. But we can choose not to allow their words or their actions to discourage us from doing what is good and right and pleasing to God. Conflict from within is never easy to deal with, be it at home, classroom, workplace, or in the church. The context of the church, conflicts from within can destroy the life of a church. My word to us, uh, God's word, and encouragement for us this morning is that we must be aware, be alert, and ask God for wisdom to deal with conflict in our own lives when it comes our way. As a church, let us be aware of Satan's strategies to destroy God's work by causing conflicts. If we cannot attack the church from outside, then Satan will certainly try to do it from within. Let us remember that God loves his church. He sent his sinless son, Jesus, into this world to show us his love. And this morning, as we have the joy of celebrating the Lord's Supper, we come to celebrate it as brothers and sisters in Christ. But I ask us this morning the question, how are our relationships with one another this morning? Do you need to forgive someone today? Are you carrying a personal grievance in your heart against someone, another brother or sister in Christ? You say, remember Jesus, friends. He knew conflict. He came to his own and his own what did they do to him? Rejected him. He knew conflict from within because one of his own, Judas, betrayed him. And at the cross, the love of God was shown when Christ hung there. And he took upon himself all the pain, all the heartaches, all the sorrow. And there he cried out, Father, forgive them. You see, that is forgiveness. That is grace. And that forgiveness is ours today. And may the Lord help us to be strong people in him. Because Christ has shown us the way. And finally, no powers of darkness will prevail upon the church of Jesus Christ. Because Christ is building his church.
Be strong in him. Let's pray.